This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We are going to kick things off with a discussion of fireworks. Not Katy Perry's fireworks, not fireworks at City Hall, everything's pretty calm, but actual fireworks shows, one that is not going to be taking place on the Victoria Day weekend, the May 2-4 weekend, put on annually by the Fanshawe Optimist Club. It is, at least I'm thinking it won't, I don't know, is there a chance that it's salvage? I don't know. I mean, we love fireworks shows. They're great. We get so many calls to the newsroom, and they ask the hardest question to answer. We're asked questions every day when you answer the phone and someone has a question, you know, and we do our best to answer them. Hardest question to answer is this one. When do the fireworks start? Uh, I, uh Like 930? Uh, I, I can't really say 930. Will it be dark by 930? I just When it's dark is the answer to the question, but people always want a specific time. The other hardest question is, when's it going to snow? Uh, yeah, uh, today? Uh, this afternoon sometime? That isn't in our forecast, by the way, even though it does look a little windy and wintry out there, a lot more than it used to. We do have that cold... Weather coming back to us, as John Wilson promised earlier today. But there will not, it looks like, be any fireworks on the May 2-4 weekend put on by the Fanshawe Optimist Club. And they've always put on a fantastic show. Chris Butcher is the vice president of the Fanshawe Optimist Club. And he joins us to begin London Live. Chris, let's make this nice and clear. Fanshawe Optimist fireworks won't necessarily happen on the May 2-4 weekend. Uh, well, not necessarily. It's a little polite. They will not happen. We, uh, unfortunately, as a group, after 34 years, have decided that we cannot continue for a number of reasons. Uh, none of us are really happy about the decision that we had to make. But uh, given the aging demographic of our group, our president is 80. I'm the youngest guy at 57. Everybody else is at 10 to 15 years older than me. Um, the manpower that is required to run a program of this size uh, for a 40-minute program of fireworks. You know, it's a lot of work. A lot of things have to happen. A lot of bodies have to be there. When I joined the club 20 years ago, we had 60 members. Obviously, we were much younger then, 20 years ago. And now we're down to 22 members. Like most service clubs, we're having a hard time attracting younger people to our group. Therefore, you can't run a program that size with 22 people. And if we don't get the weather, which happened two years ago, we had to do go to our rain date. Um, and then last year was very cold, so you don't get the cars in. You don't bring in the income, and you can't cover your costs. And let's remember, you're using this as a major fundraiser, right? This is our biggest fundraiser that we do, yes. And the money all goes right back into the community. Um, you know, just to give people an example of the things that we do, we rebuilt two parks in our area in the last five years to the tune of $135,000. Well, if we don't make money on fireworks, if we lose, like we have the last two years, then we can't do those things. Makes it very difficult. 
We are talking with Chris Butcher, Vice President of the Fanshawe Optimists, about the fact that there will not be fireworks at Fanshawe Conservation Area. And let's kind of dig into some of the things that people are wondering about, because they'll say, okay, well, people are paying to go and see this, so obviously it's possible to make money. How can you not make money? So how does the math work for the money? Well, just to give you, you know, without going into our in-depth financials, obviously, but in a 40-minute show, we blow off $15,000 for the fireworks. So the fireworks alone are fifteen grand, just to buy them. Um, then you have all the other things that go into, we have the police presence on the road, we have to rent porta-potties, we have to, we have to, we have to. There's a, a long, long list of things that cost us money. So your money that it costs to put on the show is considerably more than that. So if we get 1,000 cars, right, then we make a little bit of money. If we get 1,200 or 1,300, we've made a nice profit. If we get 653 like we did last year, we've lost money. It doesn't even cover the fireworks. Simple math, you know, and, uh, and, and we have to sort of outsource. We contact the, uh, the rovers group. There's a med, so a medical rover group here in town. And we contact them instead of paying St. John's. They're all equally as trained as the guys at St. John's, so they come out and do our med for us. But we have to make a donation to their equipment and stuff, so they work in kind. That sort of thing happens, but, you know, it's getting to the point where 22 guys cannot run the amount of work that is needed to do this. This opens up such a bigger conversation as well, Chris, and that is the idea that you are one of 22 volunteers with the Fanshawe Optimist. We have collections of other people who are volunteering their time. This has always been done in service clubs, but you've seen the numbers change. You look at the work that you're able to do, the money that you're able to raise that goes back into the community. How concerned are you looking forward? Very much so. Very much so. Um, if we're, we're no different than all the other service clubs, Kinsmen, Lions, all those sort of things. Um, and they're all aging, right? Because it, it doesn't seem to be the thing to do is to volunteer your time in a service club anymore. Um, and that's fine. You know, you can, you obviously, it's your time. And you, if you choose to not do this, that's fine. That's, you know, perfectly fine. However, those things will go away if people don't start volunteering in those types of organizations again. It's a really difficult thing to get younger people interested. Um, Part of it is, of course, we're all older and they don't think they have anything in common with us. Um, When I started, my kids were in school. It was a way to help out. It was a way to give back. Now my kids are gone, but I'm still volunteering. But the kid people who have kids now, for example, um, they're not interested in doing that. we're, We're too busy. We don't have time. And I go, well, okay, I, I don't necessarily personally agree with that. I don't speak for the club on that one. I speak for myself. Um, you have the same amount of times I do. You know, I run my own business. I volunteer. I have three kids and four grandkids, all that stuff. I'm just as busy guy as anybody else. I choose to make time, and people are not choosing to make time anymore, which is really too bad because the programs that we run are going to go away if we don't get more people. And I'm not just the Fanch Optimist, but every Optimist, Lions, Kinsman, whatever group it is, it's all the same thing. We're all having a hard time getting new members and younger members. And there is so much quiet work being done behind the scenes. That there's no way we even realize the things that these service clubs and your service oh, no, club are doing. No. Heck no. No, you do, um, people really don't have any idea. We run a, for example, we run a Friday night dance. 
uh, at Jack Chambers School for all the grades 7 and 8s in our area once a month, every first Friday of the month or whatever it is. People don't know that, right? They, they don't think that. That's not a fundraiser for us. That's just a, a way to give back, to give the kids somewhere fun to go where they're safe and they can dance the night away and have a good time. You know, we donate money to... Oh, the list is endless. Uh, the last time I checked, the number of donations that we've made in the course of any given year is about 50 different places, whether it's Boy Scouts, sports teams, uh, Child Can, you name it, you know, we're handing over money to it. And we won't be able to do that if things like the fun- major fundraisers like fireworks can't go forward. We're it's talking. That simple. That's right. We're talking with Chris Butcher, Vice President of the Fanshawe Optimist Club. We're talking about the fact that fireworks are not going to be happening in the Fanshawe Conservation Area over the May 2-4 weekend, as we normally see. And the idea that this is part of a, a much larger picture. So with the club unable to do this, if this was your major fundraiser, what do you do as a club to look at other ways to raise money? Is that kind of in the, the creation process right now, or have you talked about it? We obviously have talked about it. Um, we are in the middle of a um, deciding what to do with the club and how we want to go forward. Um, obviously, we don't want to fold the club. That's not, not really on the table, uh, certainly not as yet. Uh, what we would like to do is find some younger members with some fresh ideas because ours are clearly old and stayed, <laughs> just like most of our members. Um, so we're looking at, at trying to attract younger people who have some fresh ideas and some different ideas on how to, how to do some fundraising that is, and how to give back to the community, because that's what we do, and everything we do is a focus on youth. So, you know, we're all about that. I guess as a final thing, if there's somebody listening now who thinks, you know what, Chris is, is saying things and I'm listening and I want to do this, how do they become an optimist? Uh, it's actually fairly simple. They just have to get a hold of any optimist and they can call me anytime they like at my butcher shop in the Covent Garden Market. And uh, we run through a program, a process, I should say, uh, where they, they have to be sponsored, but that's really not a big to-do. Uh, they have to meet certain criteria, but, you know, it's not difficult. They just have to get a hold of any Optimist member, and uh, generally they like to join one in their group, and I believe there's 14 different Optimist groups in the city, so it's not difficult to find one. Uh, most of us are on Facebook and online and whatnot, and uh, just put the name forward, and uh, they'll be an Optimist in short order, and then they too can come out and help out and see what we do. Well, I love how you said it, that you're not any less busy than anybody else, but you find the time. You make the time. I do. That's my choice. You know, I choose to do that. And I get so much more out of it than I put into it. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for the conversation today. My pleasure. Thanks for calling. I appreciate it. That's Chris Butcher, VP of the Fanshawe Optimist Club. And as much as this story began about, hey, fireworks aren't happening at Fanshawe Conservation Area put on by the Fanshawe Optimist Club, it's more to it. There is more to it than that. There's, it's bigger than that. And to look at service clubs, and the optimists are an example, but they're not the only example. How long have we had Lions Club, Kinsman, Rotary, Optimist Club? And you look at what they do, and a lot of it is done so quietly, legion. And yet, if it wasn't there, it would be missed. And that's something that we are seeing dwindle. And as Chris points out, this is not just people saying, you know, I'm I'm too busy, because he's a busy guy. 
you know, part-time job, runs his own business, you know, volunteers, has kids, has grandkids. Everybody allows themselves to get busy. What is our world like without service clubs? I'm not sure. If you have a bucket list, it tends to change over time. You know, a bucket list when you're young has things like climb a mountain, bungee jump, bungee jump off a mountain. It has things like that. As you get older, that bucket list can kind of change. You know, I'd really like to see the pyramids. You know, I'd really like to dip my foot in both oceans. You know, on that vein, I'd really like to see this entire country from Toronto all the way out west. And Via Rail has provided a little something that allows you to do that. It's called the Canadian. It is a train that basically goes from Toronto all the way out to Vancouver. And people will put things like that on their bucket list saying, I got to do this. This country is beautiful. I'm going to ride across the prairies. I'm going to ride through the mountains and not have to worry about navigating on the Coquihalla. This is outstanding. And that's something that is set out. Well, thanks to the reporting done by Global News investigative journalist Megan Robinson, along with Mike D'Souza, there is there's an issue going on with this kind of a trip. If you like that trip, do you also like delays, potentially lengthy delays? Usually people don't include that on the bucket list. Yeah, I, I haven't stood in line enough. I haven't sat idle enough in my life. I, I hope I get a chance to do that. Maybe I can do it while on my trip out west. Nobody wants that. So let's get to the bottom of what is going on here because Megan Robinson, investigative journalist with Global News, joins us on London Live. Megan, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Mike. And kind of on that same note, like, yes, this is a bucket list, but world-famous trip. It is so beautiful. And if you can afford the luxuries of a four- plus day trip from Toronto to Vancouver or vice versa. There are so many amazing things you could see, but also you can be treated to a Red Seal chef and fresh meals and good, you know, nice linens and a comfortable bed. But if you can't afford those things and you are in economy class, well, it could be a long four days and you might face some delays, which unfortunately now most people do. And you mentioned it, world famous. The Canadian is considered that flagship train of via rail, isn't it? Yeah, and most people describe it as, you know, this very romantic, quiet time. You know, a lot of people think of train travel as a chance to just relax and disconnect. A lot of the the route from Toronto to Vancouver doesn't actually have cell service. So you're really disconnected and forced to just enjoy yourself. And sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. A lot of the attendants do play, you know, guitar or they've got magazines for you to read or people will play card games and entertain one another. And a lot of the experiences are good. There's even a group of train enthusiasts that take a a trip once a year, usually around this time, and they're called the Moonlighters. And they get to see things in a really special way. It's done kind of especially especially for them. Um, But they kind of get the best experience for the year. Now, that's fantastic. All of this stuff sounds good. It sounds like I'm ready to sign up. But let's go back to something you said almost right off the start. If you're in economy class, you can expect delays. And this is something that you wouldn't want. Is it something that's relatively new? 
No, not at all. And just to confirm, if even if you're in the prestige class, you're still experiencing delays. You just might be a little bit more comfortable if, say, you were delayed upwards of 43 hours, which is the longest delay that we've been able to track. 43 hours, almost two days. And that happened on one trip in January 2018 from Toronto to Vancouver. And so it was 43 hours behind schedule. When that happened, people are stuck on a train. Now, if it's four hours or 43 hours, there's a mandate that they are not allowed to let you off the train unless you are at a proper station. You can't just get off the train. It's illegal. And so during that month of January back in 2018, none of the westbound Canadian trains were on time with an average delay of 29 hours. So you, you are losing more than a day. VRail does warn against this. If you go to their website right now, no matter where you are booking a train in Canada, there's a warning that says, we do not own most of the tracks that we use, and we cannot control if your trip is on time. Do not book connections or anything the day you are expected to arrive, because there's a good chance you're going to be late. And all of that, of course, is an explanation into some of why this is happening. Wow. So people would be thinking, okay, I'm going to arrive in Vancouver and then I'll just, yeah, fly back home or whatever it is. Or, you know, people are set to pick them up. They can't. So you've painted the picture. These trains could stop in the middle of nowhere almost? Yes. And I'll tell you why. It's because from Toronto to Vancouver, CN owns most of the tracks. So VRL has a scheduling agreement to use these tracks. Each year, CN ships about $250 billion of products, oil, grain, timber. But VRail has admitted in some of their recent reports that they don't get priority on the tracks because, well, you know, they're much smaller and they have to pull off to the side for these passing tracks. So these freight trains that are CN-owned can go by. Sometimes these trains are 16,000 feet long and passenger trains are just forced to get out of the way. Whoa, we're talking right now with Megan Robinson, who, along with Mike D'Souza, did an investigation into the Canadian and the flagship train of VIA and the travel that it is providing and how sometimes it doesn't seem to be what you think it's going to be. Megan, so in terms of, of what this is all about, does VIA just kind of say, hey, we warned you, this is just part of the trip and you hope you get through without delays? Is, is that kind of what everybody's left with? Yeah, exactly. We talked to one um, Via Rail employee. He worked with them for 35 years. He was a service manager, and he was kind of the main character in all of our stories because he was able to kind of bring to life all of these issues um, that people on board face, including the attendants. And he said, listen, I'm 55. I just retired this year. But he says he could have worked for another 10 years if he didn't have to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, all day long, because that's all he was doing. And he said it was just exhausting. People were always upset, and there was nothing he could do about it. Yeah. And again, that's what it boils down to. Unless VIA wants to find a way to put down their own tracks, it sounds like this inconvenience is a possibility the rest of the way. Yeah, so a lot of rail advocates have been calling for a new law, so some new legislation uh, that would give Via Rail more power to make it easier to punish companies for causing delays, so CN, for example. But we did speak to the federal government about this, and they say they are not considering new legislation for passenger rail. There is another option, though. Right now, uh, and we get into this tomorrow for part three of our story, but it's something called high-frequency rail. Essentially, this would mean 
dedicated tracks and more reliable trains, um, specifically in the corridor to start. So from Toronto to Quebec City and all of the places that the train stops in between. And that would make sure the trains are on time because they would be on their own tracks. VIA only owns a small portion of the tracks between Toronto and Quebec City. However, VIA Rail is currently estimating that is going to cost $4.4 billion of federal funds. And unfortunately, They've had a history of maybe not getting the results that they were hoping when they put down millions of dollars trying to improve service, when in actual fact it made it a lot worse for people. So we'll we'll get more into that. It's called high-frequency rail. Um, If it is successful, if it does work, we could see it mirrored in other places in the country, which then would revive train service and allow people the option of taking passenger trains. I mean, we spoke to one person for this story. I flew up to Winnipeg, and it's one of the hubs for Via Rail employees, and a lot of people use the train out there. And this passenger I spoke to said, listen, every time I take Via Rail, I just expect it to be at least 12 hours late. He just plans for it. That's not okay. No, it's not. If you were expecting the same every time you took a plane, you probably wouldn't take one very often. We'll look forward to the next part of this series. Megan, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Mike. That is Megan Robinson. You can look at globalnews.ca, and you can find yesterday, you can find today, and soon you'll find tomorrow. And the series continues on train travel in this country. Let's look back. Yesterday we had... You can call it a scandal exposed. It's been called an international scheme. It's had a lot of pretty interesting names so far. And it has federal charges to it. And it took place in Manhattan yesterday, I guess. Uh, More than two dozen people, 27 in total, including the trainer of maximum security, a champion horse, maximum security is kind of the the biggest name in all of this, but charges against trainers, veterinarians, and others were detailed in court, and now we'll wait and see how things go. Uh, They have been charged with drug adulteration, uh, misbranding. Basically, it's the use of performance-enhancing drugs for horses, So why don't we look at how this affects horse racing, period. Horse racing, harness racing, everything. Brian Tropy is the general manager of the Ontario Harness Horse Association and joins us. Brian, when you hear a story like this, what is your first reaction? Uh, I guess outrage would be the first one, disappointment. Um, You know, it's a, a day of reckoning for the industry, I'd say. Yeah, and the industry probably doesn't really need a day of reckoning right now, does it? No, not similar to any other industry. I mean, bad news is bad news, and uh, unfortunately, we've got you know horrible news for our industry, and a few bad actors are casting a black cloud over the industry. So, uh, I'm encouraged by the fact that they were caught, and obviously, you know, if the allegations are true, that the penalties will be significant enough that it will deter anybody else from trying to do what they were alleged to have been done. That's just it. And we look at any sport, and it doesn't matter what it is. Eventually, someone is caught doing something, using something that they're not supposed to be using, going after either a win or going after the almighty dollar or whatever it happens to be. But in terms of of maybe the way things are handled for the Ontario Harness Horse Association, 
Is this something that you've had to look into in the past in terms of setting out rules and regulations for what horses can and can't have? Yeah, definitely. And there's a list of therapeutic medications. I mean, they're athletes and they take the same things that athletes take. They're treated for ulcers or uh, allergies or, you know, muscle soreness, all those types of things. And there's uh, therapeutic medication guidelines and uh, you're allowed to use those on horses, but not within a certain period uh, prior to a race. So in Ontario, for instance, we probably have some of the most strictest uh, guidelines against uh, medication use. And the horse that's entered the race can't have anything other than an anti-bleeder medication called Lasix uh, within 24 hours of the race. And we also have some of the strictest penalties uh, if people are caught with uh, enhancing drugs. And we, in Ontario, we also have what they call out-of-competition testing, where our regulator can show up unannounced at any facility where horses are stabled and do an unannounced search of the barn. So I think that... Uh, Ontario's probably ahead of most jurisdictions as far as trying to make sure that everything's fair. Brian Tropy joining us, the general manager of the Ontario Harness Horse Association. As we look back to charges that were laid in Manhattan, and we look at now what that does for the industry and, and kind of the questions that people ask, in putting all of that together, how long a process has that been? I mean, when would this stuff have even started? Well, all I know is, uh, you know, what I've been reading and and hearing, and my understanding is that it's been something that they've been on working on for a couple of years now. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of undercover work that was done and wiretapping and uh, recording phone calls and capturing text messages and stuff. So it was a very in-depth investigation. And, uh, you know, the people that they've caught were some very high-profile people and that, you know, people in the industry, there's been chatter in the industry forever that there's, you know, what they call super trainers. And they're trainers that can take horses and improve them rather quickly. And they continue to pass all of the drug testing protocols that we have. So there's always this, you know, understanding in the industry that if they were doing something, it was something that they couldn't catch. And fortunately, this investigation has uncovered what they were doing and like I say, hopefully it's deterrent enough for others that are contemplating doing those types of things not to do it because there's nothing more important to the people that work hard and do things fair and play by the rules to make sure that they have a level playing field. And uh, that's the biggest question. And then, of course, we, we're a, a, an industry that relies on our customer wagering, and it's our obligation to ensure that they're uh, wagering on a fair product. Yeah, and that's just it. I mean, when you add in that aspect of it, it kind of takes it to a different dimension. We're talking with Brian Tropy, General Manager of the Ontario Harness Associa- Harness Horse Association. When you go back to when you created regulations or when the Ontario Harness Horse Association started to create the regulations that, that you looked at and, and that you know are, are kind of tough with people coming in unannounced, how long has that process been going on? Uh, it, we didn't create them. It's the Ontario Racing Commission that created them, and it's it's a federal program. The Canadian Paramutual Agency runs the drug testing in racing, and it's been going on for you know probably close to a hundred years. And uh, it evolves basically on a yearly basis. And you know, there's always new medications that are out being used. And you know, this the ones that have been caught here just recently appear to be. Um, drugs or, or medications that increase the oxygen capability of the blood in the horse, which is 
the same thing that Lance Armstrong eventually got caught with in the Tour de France. So, you know, it's, it's the, the people that are in charge of trying to catch the people that are doing something wrong seem to always be paying, playing catch-up. Let's look at the industry as a whole right now. If you are to look at, at what you feel is going very well and what challenges you face, where would you put that? Uh, I think one of the challenges is the fact that uh, our, our product hasn't really changed in the last 100 years. We raced 10 races a night and staggered out 20 or 30 minutes apart. And I think that uh, as an industry, we need to look at whether or not that that product is still something that the average person will enjoy. Uh, you know, it seems like we, everything that we do nowadays has to be faster. And having somebody commit to three or four hours of their time to watch 10 races might not be in the best interest of our sport right now. I personally believe that we need to speed up the time in between races and condense the amount of time that you're asking your consumer to give to you. Um, similar to baseball and other sports, which look at every opportunity they can find to speed up their game. We have a game that would be easily sped up, yet it doesn't appear that the people that are in charge um, have, have considered that. So that's one of the things. I think we need to have a, an entertainment um, component to going to the races. That's very interesting. I mean, that's, that's something we haven't necessarily heard before, the idea that you want to speed up races. And you say it's possible to do it. Absolutely. Yeah, we could take the, uh, the say, the three-and-a-half or four-hour traditional race card and condense that down to two-and-a-half hours very easily. If we look at the betting side of things, when online and, you know, when virtual betting, I guess, for, for lack of a better word, came in, when you could watch a race at any time of day, you know, you could, you could go to a racetrack, there'd be somebody racing in Australia, and you could take part in that as entertainment. When that happened, people thought, wow, this, this is just going to balloon. And you, you look at things right now, where would you put it for, you know, the, the online components and, and how that's going? Well, it's been, a, it's been a blessing and it's been a curse because you don't have to have live racing now. You can buy the product. The racetrack operators can buy the product from some other racetrack that is putting on the and carrying the infrastructure costs of creating that product, and they can sell it to their consumer. So there's no cost of them to, to provide it other than the 2 or $0.03 cents per dollar that they pay the, the racetrack that's producing it. And so there's been a move to reduce the amount of live racing, which costs a lot of money to put on, and replace that with signal that's being generated around the, the world. The flip side of that is we make money from those products that are sold from all over the world, and a portion of that goes to fund our prize money. So uh, there, there needs to be a balance, and there needs to be, you know, to make sure... I can remember Eugene Whalen was the Federal Minister of Agriculture when the bill was passed to allow simulcast wagering, and he signed it reluctantly because he was concerned that it would eventually displace live horse racing. And they made sure that there was language in the legislation that protected live racing, but I don't think it goes far enough to make sure that uh, tracks can't just eliminate live racing and replace it with simulcast. Interesting that they would put it in there, and yet it, it still didn't have the effectiveness it needed to have. Right, right. Wow. 
We're talking with Brian Tropy, the general manager of the Ontario Harness Horse Association. Our conversation began because of the charges that were laid in Manhattan uh, against a number of different people, 27 different people yesterday, but just looking at, at where the industry sits. In terms of, of young people, do you find an attraction from young people to the industry? Is that something you discuss? Uh, no, I, I don't think that we have a product that is that attractive to them, and I don't see the effort from racetracks as a significant enough effort to, as I spoke about earlier, making sure that we have a product that is going to be uh, appealing to those to those people. So I, th- I think we have an opportunity to improve what we're doing, um, but I, I just don't see that a lot of our racetracks now are are being run and operated by gaming companies that have slot facilities at the racetracks or in some cases full-blown casinos now at some of our racetracks. And it seems like all the efforts are, are being focused on the casinos and not a lot of attention is being paid to the racing side. How about the trainers and the, the people involved, you know, kind of firsthand in all of this? We've heard that they've had challenges even with their own animals and things like that. Is, is that still a concern? Yeah, it is. I mean, there there needs to be enough prize money so that when you race, you can afford to pay your bills. And uh, you know, it's all based on on the prize money that you can. There's, if you own horses and you train horses, there's no guarantee that you're going to make any money. Um, so all your hard work and efforts and investments uh, may lead to nothing. So you know, it's it's a difficult industry at the best of times to uh, make money from. And uh, with the purse money being lower at some of the racetracks than it was previously when we had the slots at racetrack program, uh, a lot of people have had to, you know, get rid of some horses and stuff. And the industry's probably 40% of the size that it was in 2012 before the government ended the slots at racetrack program. Well, Brian, it's been great talking to you and kind of getting caught up. Thank you so much for the time. All the best going forward. Thanks a lot, Mike. Anytime. Brian Tropy, General Manager of the Ontario Harness Horse Association. We'll talk again because that is an industry that bears a lot of watching because it has had great health in its time. But you just heard the numbers that Brian mentioned at the end. I mean, we have seen a decline. We have seen challenges in terms of the cost of animals. We've seen challenges in the way that racetracks are run, and now it's kind of slots and racetrack or now casino and racetrack and they kind of go hand in hand but the casino and slots kind of becomes that primary and if you look at it as a sport i don't is it is it like boxing is it the fact that we it's hard to follow if you make something easy to follow then you're doing yourself a favor if people know when you play the nfl is the best example of this And as much as it likes to play on Thursdays and a game on Monday and toward the end of the season, maybe a Saturday or two, you know that NFL games are on Sunday. You know that they happen between September and when the playoffs start in January. And then the Super Bowl used to be late January, now early February. But you know that. And that's one of those things that makes the NFL so easy to follow and almost always ensures its popularity. And if you can look at schedules for other leagues – You know if you follow the London Knights, the Toronto Maple Leafs, you know the Maple Leafs play tonight, you know the Knights play on Friday, and it's easy to find that information. If you want information about how a team is doing, you can find it. If we took some of the best horses and put them into a league, first off, I don't know how you would do that, you know, under under the, the brand of an ownership. They already have owners. 
And you've got more owners. You don't have owners that are able to own 25 horses in every single instance. Some owners will have one or two. So that's not going to work. And nobody's going to be traveling around that much, bringing the horse around that much in order to race. You're going to go to the tracks, you know, and you're going to go to your home track more than you are going to make trips all over the place. So, you know, that's not a way to do it. So in the end, you're left with a sport that in a landscape that is always notifying you of something that has difficulty doing it for anybody who is not already brought up in it or who has not already been exposed to it. And that's maybe the toughest thing going for harness racing right now. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.